I will throw one more plug in for REACH. This is going to be my first year serving there, um, and I, I'm excited and have fear of the unknown, uh, but just tacking on something that Tony said, uh, the most challenging ministry is also the most rewarding. The more challenging the ministry, then the more rewarding it is. But that's not what we're talking about today. Today, we are talking about Jesus' messages to the churches at Thyatira and Sardis. And we're going to be looking at uh, stained or unstained. Stained or unstained. And that comes from James 1.27, if you're familiar with that. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world, unstained by the world. Who knows, who's ever heard of Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis? Ignaz Semmelweis. None of you were ever seen by Dr. Semmelweis. He lived in the 1800s. He was a Hungarian physician who practiced medicine in the early to mid-1800s. And in that day, the mortality rate for expectant mothers in his part of the world was upwards of 25 to 30 percent. One out of three, one out of four mothers died. And they were dying from what was called childbed fever, uh, which was an infection of reproductive organs. I feel like I'm turning over my shoulder too far to talk to you guys, so let me back up a little bit. And what was happening, in that day, a doctor would start by performing autopsies. And then they would go from autopsies into working with these women. Uh, they weren't washing their hands. Dr. Semmelweis studied this, and he was the first in history to associate these examinations with the resultant infection and death. And he began the practice of washing with a chlorine solution. And over time, out of the thousands of women that he treated, only 154 mothers, about one out of every 50, was dying. Um, and it's noteworthy that his discovery was not widely accepted at the time. In fact, he was mocked, um, denied jobs in Switzerland, um, and you know, did not have the advance that you might have thought of. Uh, but Dr. Simmelweis, even though he was widely criticized, he learned the danger of infection and the importance of being clean, or said another way, unstained. So as we look at these two churches today, they had been stained by the infection of the world, by sin. Thyatira was infected with sin from the inside, within their church. And they knew about it, they weren't doing anything about it. A little bit differently, Sardis was infected from the inside and didn't even know it. They didn't even know it. They did not know that they were stained. The world surrounding these churches had stained them, either knowingly or unknowingly, and Christ has a message for each one of these churches. They needed to get the infections, the sin, out. They needed to get the stains out. And as we have been discussing each week, these aren't just messages for these real churches that existed 2,000 years ago. They are a message for us, for the church today as well. So what was going on in Thyatira? Moving inland from the coast on our mail route, this city, Thyatira, comes in off of the coast, and it was known for purple dye. 
Does anybody know uh, a reference in Scripture somewhere other than this letter to Thyatira and purple dye? Sound familiar? Who? Lydia. Lydia. Yes, Acts 16, 14 tells us Lydia, who was the first, Paul's first convert in Asia, that she was a seller of purple or a dealer in purple. Um, and it was rare, and it took a process, and Thyatira uh, was well known for that. They were also well known uh, because of trade guilds and what the trade guilds were. And we've talked about this a little bit. Uh, they had several uh, that were a part of this city, clothing, leathery, pottery, bronze. Um, these guilds would each have their own god that they worshipped. And part of those trade guild meetings would have been participating in these religious festivals where all this sin was originating, the, the eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols and the sexual immorality. If you wanted to have a successful business, you had to be a part of the trade guild. Thyatira was like trade guild central. It was a mostly Gentile population. Uh, the worship of Apollo and Artemis, also known as Diana, was, uh, was very prominent. Um, and compared to Smyrna, in uh, Ephesus and Pergamum, these other churches and these other cities that we've been talking about, Thyatira was pretty obscure. In the world, it would have kind of been nothing special, um, not, not much to speak of. So what is going on in this church in Thyatira? What does Jesus have to say? Let's read. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to Revelation 2. We're going to start in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead." And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations." and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So how does Jesus identify himself to this church? What does he tell them? Who is he? He's the Son of God. And what does he have? open book. It's right there in front of you. Morning star. 
No, not the morning star. That's what he's going to give them. What does he have there in the beginning of the passage? What does he tell them? Eyes like flaming fire and feet like burnished bronze. Now that should, again, as, it, as in each of these messages, take us back to Christ's description of himself from chapter 1, right? And if you remember, we talked about this. Those that the, the idea of the righteous judge should come to mind. Those eyes of flaming fire, that piercing Jesus sees everything. He knows everything. The feet of burnished bronze. Remember, uh, what, uh, what implement in the temple, uh, what vessel was made of burnished bronze? Remember, remember we talked about it? The brazen altar. What, what happened on the brazen altar? Yeah, that was where they brought the sacrifice for the atonement of sin specifically. So Jesus is presenting himself as the Son of God, the righteous judge. He sees and knows everything, not just our actions, but our thoughts and our motives. He knows it all. And it takes us and it connects with verse 23 when he says that he's the one that searches minds and hearts. It's those eyes of flaming fire that is searching our minds and our hearts. Jesus knows everything, and he knows what's going on in this church. Now, this church looked like a model church. It looked good from the outside. Anybody like apples? I love apples. I love, this is a great time of year because the Honeycrisps are like out. I can, thinking back to a time I had this huge, red, perfect, beautiful Honeycrisp apple. And if you've eaten by a lot of apples, you know they can have a bruise or a cut, and, you know, you want to cut those off before you eat them. Well, this, this was perfect. Could not see a spot or a blemish. So take the first bite. Bleh. It had rotted from the inside out. That nice whitish, yellowish fruit was just all brown mush. But you couldn't tell it by looking at it. That's the church at Thyatira. It was rotting from the inside out. What does Jesus say? He says he knew their works. They were doing lots of good things. They had programs. They were loving and ministering to others. They were persevering. And not only were they doing these things, what did it say? They were improving. They were doing all these good things and, and they were growing in them. But they had a problem. And they were allowing, tolerating this sin in the body. And this sin was led by Jezebel. And Jezebel may bring up memories of someone from the Old Testament. It should. It's likely that her name was not actually Jezebel. This is just a, a nickname, so to speak, for her. Could have been Jezebel. But it is certainly meant to draw us back to that thought of Jezebel from the Old Testament. Well, who was the Jezebel of the Old Testament? If you remember, she was a pagan, she was the daughter of a pagan king, the king of the Sidonians, um, who Ahab, who was the king of Israel at the time, the divided kingdom, married. Now, was Ahab a good king or a bad king? He was a bad king. Here's a hint. The kings of Israel, after they divided, were all bad. Part of the reason Ahab was bad was because he had this evil wife influencing him. So how evil was Jezebel? Who remembers something evil that Jezebel did? Go back to your 1 Kings 16, 17. She was committed. She had uh, the name of 
Naboth. Okay, see, there's this one time, so Ahab, there was this man named Naboth who had this beautiful vineyard. And Ahab saw it and wanted it. And he goes to Naboth and says, hey, let me buy your vineyard. Or, you know, I'll give you something better. I want your vineyard. Naboth's like, no way, I'm not selling you my vineyard. Which was kind of pretty bold to tell that to the king. But that's what he said. So what did Ahab do? He goes home to Jezebel. He wouldn't let me buy his vineyard. He whines to his wife. And so she basically ridicules him and says, why are you whining? You're the king. She goes, she has Naboth killed and takes his vineyard and gives it to Ahab. Another time, Jezebel had all the prophets, or attempted to have all of the prophets of Israel killed. She put hundreds of them to death, tried to kill Elijah, and he spent half his life, I think, running from her. So she was an evil, evil woman. And that is the kind of woman that this church was allowing in their midst to teach and deceive others. She was leading those in the church to practice the pagan lifestyles uh, that were going on in, one of the, in Pergamum that we talked about last week. Those pagan worship love feasts that involved sacrifices and sexual immorality, the ones that I was just sharing that were taking place at these trade guild meetings. And essentially she's telling them and leading them to think that that's okay, that it's okay for you as a professing believer in Christ to engage in this activity. You know, it mentions that they were engaging with her in this sin, and it could mean uh, that they were personally engaging with her. It could simply mean that they were doing the same things that she was doing in teaching. You know, it's noteworthy, I think, in the text that we see Jesus tells them that she was teaching and deceiving his servants. His servants. It's a reminder that we belong to Christ and that this church and the church belongs to Christ. He claims possession of his servants and his church. And he takes it very seriously when someone is encouraging them to sin. Jezebel was not a child of God, and neither were those who were sinning with her and encouraging her. But they were having an impact on the true believers that were a part of this church. In verse 24, Jesus refers to this theology and this idea that she was teaching as the deep things of Satan which is a reference to the idolatrous activity that was going on. What she was claiming was the way to worship Christ, that you could still worship Christ in these evil pagan practices and leading others to do that. That was actually Satan's work. He was behind it. He is prowling around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. And he's not paying a lot of attention to the people outside the church. His attention is on the people in the church. He wants to devour us. And we see in this church also a progression as compared to the other churches. In Pergamum, there were some who were holding to the teaching of Balaam, an indication of a minority group. Well, here, the some was actually the true church. It was only that small remnant that was left. The majority were not following Christ. So what does Jesus have to tell them about this? Jesus is going to judge her and those committing adultery with her and her children. You know, it said he had great compassion, mercy, and kindness with his patience with Jezebel. He gave her time to repent, but what? What does it say? She refused. Wow. She openly rejected the grace and mercy of Christ. 
Her time was now up. She is, it doesn't say, I may. Jesus says, I am going to judge her and judge her on a sickbed. And that picture is, the word there is actually, it's a reclining couch. I mean, think of like a chase lounge uh, in our time. Um, and it would have been a picture of where she was committing and these acts were being committed in these pagan feasts. The same bed in which she was sinning was going to be the bed in which Christ was going to judge her. Scary stuff. And he says that those who commit adultery with her are going to be chastised. He's going to bring them tribulation. And then he says her children would receive death. Now it's highly unlikely these are actual descendants of hers. It's most likely he's speaking uh, figuratively of children as those who are following her ways. But either way, we see that he was going to bring them death. Those children of hers were going to receive death. Now, I'll just mention here, there are some commentators who see these as two different groups, those who are committing adultery with her and her children, and there are some commentators that see those simply as one group. And then, therefore, in the same manner, they see those as two different punishments or the same punishment going, uh, both of those punishments to the same group. The point I think we need to take from this is, are these two things. Number one, Jesus doesn't take it lightly when people are leading his children into sin, especially within his church. And number two, the church was not going to have to deal with him. Noticeably absent from this letter was, you need to do this or take this action against these people. Who's going to take care of these people? Jesus. Christ Himself is going to deal with the sin in this church. That's how seriously He's taken. I'm kind of, it kind of gives me chills thinking about it right here. It is serious business uh, when we allow sin in the church, and Jesus is going to clean the stains out of the church in Thyatira. So the command and the encouragement to those who were sinning with her is to repent. It was too late for Jezebel. The time for her to repent had passed. But for those who were committing sins with her, there was still time for them to repent. And what, did, what does it mean to repent? It's a change of mind that leads to a change of action, change of behavior. Change of, a change in mind that leads to a change in behavior. That is repentance, and that is what the people who were sinning with her needed to do. The remnant, the small group that was left who was not participating in that sin but that was tolerating it, they needed to stand up. They needed to get rid of the sinful teaching and sinful activity in their church, stop tolerating it, and follow Christ. Jesus tells them they needed to hold fast and that he would place no other burden on them. That word for burden is interesting, and it simply means it's a weight. If you, uh, Galatians 6.1 uh, uses that same word, and it's also the same root word that John used in the, his letter. 1 John 5.3 says that his, speaking of Jesus, his commandments are not burdensome. Christ's commands are not a weight to carry. Jesus had that same thought in mind uh, in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ is telling him that it's not a heavy weight to obey me, to follow me. Do we ever think that sometimes, that the commandments of Christ are hard to follow and difficult? It's, it's really not. It's not. It's the sin that's going to end up being the burden. And we don't sense that all the time, not in our flesh certainly, but the truth is the commands of Christ are not burdensome. All they needed to do was to hold fast to Him. They needed to keep doing the good things that they'd been doing, but the good works weren't enough, as we saw, right? It wasn't enough for them just to be doing those good works. He still had something against them. They were tolerating the sin. They needed to get the stains out, because if they didn't get the stains out, it was going to end up staining everything. And that's not what they needed. His promise to them, to those who would overcome, who those who hold fast and keep him, in other words, that the continuing to follow him, continuing to obey, is that they would rule with him, which is an interesting idea. Literally, it means to shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. And it's a picture of Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm and a picture of the millennial reign of Christ. And I'll read to you from Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Only ask, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. You will break them with, a rod of, with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. And we know from Scripture that we will, those believers in Christ, will reign with Him during His millennial kingdom. In 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, it says, This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. I don't know what that looks like. And I, I don't know how to express it to you in, in any other way, just to tell you what it says. We will reign with Him. And those who overcome, especially for this church in Thyatira, we will shepherd the nations with Christ as He rules them with a rod of iron when He returns for His millennial reign. And it also says that the overcomers will receive the morning star. That's like, what is the morning star? What does that mean? The morning star is Christ Himself. It's Christ Himself. And we know that from Revelation twenty-two sixteen when Jesus identifies himself as the bright morning star. We, not only will we inherit the, to reign with him, we inherit him, which is a beautiful picture of eternal life in Christ. The church in Thyatira was surrounded by stains, and although that small remnant was keeping themselves clean, uh, they were letting the stains into their fellowship. The message is to stop tolerating the sin, Hold fast and overcome. Keep yourself unstained from the world. So let's move on and see what's going on in Sardis. The city of Sardis was 33 miles or so south from Thyatira, and it had a garrison, and you see the ruins there pictured, uh, at the top of the city uh, on top of an acropolis. Um, and they give you a picture of kind of the city walls. The city, this garrison, was... Uh, basically just a straight up and down wall on three sides. And the fourth side was very, very difficult to traverse. 
It should have been very easy for them to defend this, but there were two times in history uh, when it was overtaken, and the two times leading up to this letter in the first century, it would have been in uh, B.C. One of those was when Cyrus, who uh, was leading the Persians, invaded them in the sixth century. So a Persian soldier saw one of the Sardinian soldiers on the wall drop his helmet, and the helmet comes tumbling down the hill, and he watched as this soldier took a secret path down to where his helmet was. And then the Persians then found that secret path and were able to go in and invade this city because it wasn't defended. They didn't think anybody could get up there to them. They thought they were safe and they had fallen asleep. Keep that in mind uh, in a second when we get to Christ's message to this church. Sardis was a very wealthy city. It was known for the birthplace of coins. They were the first, first city to create and use coins, and it has, also had a great wool industry. And much like the other cities that we've been talking about, it was the home to idolatrous practices. They had a huge temple to Artemis or Diana there. Um, it was actually the same size as the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, only they never completed it. They never finished it to be as beautiful you know, as the one that we talked about, the, the seven wonders of the world, the, the temple of Diana there in Ephesus. Notably, Sardis was also known for cemeteries. It was, they called it the city of a thousand hills, and you can kind of tell that there were hills all around it, and on many of these hills were burial sites. So they would have also, not only would they have been familiar with somebody sneaking in while they were asleep, they would also have been very familiar with death. And Jesus is about to tell them something about death. So what is happening with the church at Sardis? Let's read now in Revelation 3, uh, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus doesn't have anything good to tell this church, and that's what we see for the very first time. This is the fifth, right, this is the fifth of the seven that we've looked at. And for the first time, Jesus doesn't have anything good to tell them. Some commentators, and in fact, your sections uh, of the Scripture may categorize these. Some call them the asleep church, others the complacent church, and others simply the dead church. And whichever of those you pick, it's not good. So Jesus identifies himself as the one who has the seven spirits. Does anybody remember we talked about this description, the seven spirits in chapter 1, what the seven spirits refers to? 
Anybody? It's the Holy Spirit, seven being the number of completeness and fullness. So when Jesus is saying that he has the seven spirits, what he is saying is he, is, he has the fullness of the wisdom of God. Jesus has the fullness of the wisdom of God. What about the seven stars? And he told us very specifically in Revelation 1.20 what the seven stars represent. Angels of the churches or the messengers or pastors of these churches. So Jesus who has the completeness and the fullness of the wisdom of God, who is in the seven stars, Jesus holding them in his right hand, is a picture of, again, Jesus' authority and ownership of the church. So Christ, with the fullness and of the wisdom of God, and as the owner, the head of the church, he has the right and the knowledge about what's going on here and to call them out. He is worthy to accurately judge them and to command their repentance. He knows they have a reputation for being alive. And the, the Greek grammar of how this sentence is constructed is, this is directed to the individuals of that church. And what he's saying is, you have the reputation of being a believer. You have the reputation, you, you say you're a Christian, but you're not. And this is scary stuff. And we're going to be talking about that. They were known as professing Christians, but he tells them that they're not alive, they're dead. They were dead in their sins, just like all of the bodies in those graves surrounding the city. They were dead. They thought they were unstained, but they were terribly stained. And that is a dangerous position to be in. They needed to wake up, to arise from their slumber, and to come to Christ to be cleaned. There was a small remnant of believers there, and they needed to strengthen what remained. In other words, they needed to grow in Christ, and they needed to get started doing Christ's work of sharing the gospel and making disciples. The church was going to die unless something changed. Because eventually, those believers are going to die off. The gospel was not being shared, and there was going to be no church left because there were going to be no true believers left in Sardis. No gospel witness. He tells them that their works were not complete. Now, this could be an indication that their works, there weren't enough works in number, but most assuredly, it meant that the works were not there or not meeting the standard of quality. And what does Jesus tell us about work? And, you know, in John 15, Jesus says, Apart from me, you can do louder. Nothing. We have to abide in Christ because apart from Him, we can do nothing. This church, most of the people in this church, had no part in Christ. Therefore, the works had no power, no meaning. There was an indication that they were doing things, but they were not bearing any fruit. They weren't bearing fruit because they weren't attached to the vine. They were dead. They thought they were working for Jesus, but they weren't. And it's a picture of what we see in Matthew 7, in verses 22 and 23. Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? In other words, we're doing all this great stuff, Jesus. We did this. What does Jesus say? I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
I never knew you. Those are the most terrifying words in the Bible. These people in Sardis who were going and doing church, they thought they were unstained, but they were stained. And that's a terrifying thought. They needed to remember, obey, and repent. They needed to remember the gospel that had been shared with them. They needed to confess their sin, repent of their sin, and trust Christ for their salvation. And the remnant, the true believers, that small group that was still there, they needed to get busy sharing that message. They needed to get busy making disciples. And that call to repentance was made with Christ telling them that if they didn't do it, He was going to sneak in like a thief, just like the Persians did in the 6th century when they fell asleep at the defenses. They weren't going to know when He was going to show up. He was going to come like a thief in judgment. Jesus is telling them, even though they think they're unstained, they are stained, and they need to repent. But the beauty of this is that there is still grace and mercy available. Jesus promises the ones who overcome, who persevere, who will repent, it's a threefold promise. He promises them first a white robe. What do you think a white robe might signify? We're talking about being stained and unstained. Clean, pure, holy. Christ is going to make them. He's going to make us clean, pure, and holy. That's what He does. The cleansed by the blood of Christ. Our sins leave us dirty and defiled. But to the one who overcomes, who perseveres, Christ will clothe them in white. Again, it's a, a symbolic of purity and righteousness. We don't conjure that up ourselves. It's a gift of God. It is gift of Christ that comes through him. He's the one that saves us. He's the one that cleans us up. The next one is interesting. The promise is that their name will not be blotted out of the book of life. Now, we, re we hear about what is the book of life. It's mentioned several times in Scripture. What does the book of life contain? The names of the saints, the names of all believers. And Jesus' promises is that their name will not be blotted out. Well, some take this and stretch that to mean that there's an indication here that you can lose your salvation, that there is something that you could do to have your name erased from the book of life. But we know from the clear teaching of other Scripture that that's not the case. There is nothing that can snatch us out of His hands once we belong to Christ. So what could this be talking about? Well, very interesting is, in the first century and, and, and times before that, cities would have a register. And in the register would be the names of all the citizens of the city. Well, the city would, would have the right for undesirable people or for criminals to blot out someone's name. You could have your name removed from the city's register. And the, the professing Christians who went against the ways of the world were going to be in danger of having their names and probably were already in danger of having their name removed from the city register. And what Jesus is saying is, if I write your name in my book, there's nothing that will blot it out. And that is the message here. That's the promise to the people who will overcome. We can't do anything to get our name written into his book, and we can't do anything to get our name blotted out of his book. You are eternally secure once you have come to Christ. 
The third promise is, is that he would confess us and confess the overcomers to the Father and to his angels. And that word here for confess or to acknowledge, your translation may say acknowledge, it simply means it's a very strong, powerful testimony, like in a court of law before a judge. Matthew 10.32 said, Jesus is quoted as saying, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. And in Luke 12.8, Jesus says, And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. And what Christ is telling us is, you know, it's the picture of, Christ, of the Father on his throne surrounded by his angels and Jesus in his presence testifying on our behalf, our advocate. For those who have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, that are saved, Jesus will confess our name before God and before his angels. In other words, before the throne in heaven. Jesus would be our advocate. So to summarize, the promises are he's going to replace the stained robes with clean white ones, his righteousness, that the names are in his book in permanent ink with a sharpie. We have eternal security, and also that he will testify before the Father and his throne that Christ will be our advocate to proclaim that we are his. Those promises are true for the faithful remnant in Sardis, and they're true for us today, for believers in Christ. So, some questions for personal reflection. Some things that I'd love for you to take home and think about in the days and the week ahead. The first is, are you willfully stained? And what I mean by that is, are you living a life of sin? And you know it. It's like, you know that you have sin in your life and you're not doing anything about it, you don't care, you're reveling in your sin. Are you willfully stained? Next, are you allowing anything or anyone in your life to, that's staining you? In other words, your choice of entertainment, your choice of friends. Are you allowing things to stain you? What are you going to do this week to prevent that? If you're not doing it. And if you are, what are you going to do this week to repent? That's my challenge. The next one is, are you asleep? Do you need to wake up? Maybe you've heard something today and it's like, whoa, I thought I was unstained, but I'm stained. The encouragement is to wake up, get rid. Jesus wants us to come to him to be cleansed. And maybe, hopefully, for the, for the majority of us, is maybe we're in a position where we've got some information now that we can go, who am I going to encourage with this information this week? Who in my life can I share this with as an encouragement and to help them remain unstained? So some questions for personal reflection. But for the remainder of our time, I've got some discussion questions for our tables. So go through these at our tables in the, in the remaining time, the, the last 10, 10 or so minutes. Let me leave you with this. I mentioned that that was the most terrifying words in Scripture. I never knew you. There are lots of people on the planet who profess Christ, but they do not possess Christ. 
Don't let that be you. You know, it, we can't attend a class and get saved. We don't walk down an aisle and get saved. Getting baptized, whether it was as a baby or as an eight-year-old, whatever, doesn't make you saved. We are saved when we come to Christ. Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Son of God, and I know that you came, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on a cross to pay the penalty for my sins. I belonged on that cross, not you. But he didn't stay dead. He rose three days later, and he is in heaven now and will live forever. When we believe that that is the Jesus that offers us forgiveness, and we confess our sins before him and trust him as the only way to receive salvation, the, the scriptures tell us, then you will be saved. When you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Don't leave here today thinking that you just professed Christ when maybe you never possessed him. Hopefully that's not true. Hopefully we have all possessed Christ. But don't leave here uninformed today. If we are stained, let Christ unstain us. So, now, please discuss these at your tables.